Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's episode, we're going to venture back on over to Kalamazoo. Now, Kalamazoo has some incredible history of guitars, taxi cabs, even fishing tackle and pharmaceuticals, and all kinds of other interesting businesses, including undergarments and stoves and windmills. But there's a particular industry that many have forgotten about the early legacy of Kalamazoo, and that is the history of their early distilleries. So we're going to go into some of that history today and talk a little bit of whiskey. So come along and join me. Now today's article that I'm going to be reading from comes from the Kalamazoo Library Local History section online. And this article was detailed and researched by Keith Howard. And if you're interested in reading the entire thing, I will put the link to this article in the description of this podcast. And definitely check out the Kalamazoo history section of the Kalamazoo Library online, because there's a lot of other wonderful stories there that you can read. So over the years, dozens of peoples and products have helped bring notoriety to Kalamazoo. And as I've covered before on this podcast, Gibson guitars, checker cabs, and even windmills came from Kalamazoo, and they had different industries there. But one of the first products made in the village and the first to bring national attention to Kalamazoo was, of all things, whiskey. America's thirst for alcohol during the early 19th century and the problems that went along with it is certainly no secret. But did you know that annual per capita consumption in the United States then averaged nearly three times what it is today? And Kalamazoo was no exception. In its 1837 annual report, the Kalamazoo Total Abstinence Temperance Society stated that the combined total sales for the five local liquor retailers that year amounted to 4,375 gallons, including 1,070 gallons of whiskey. Now compare that with Kalamazoo's population at the time, which was just 1,367, that was quite a disparity. Now, a decade or so later, the big village boasted no less than six breweries and two distilleries, plus a thriving crop of saloons and liquor retailers, which is rather amazing for a community of then just about 7,000 people. So it was customary, recalled one early pioneer, to have liquor for such times as the raising of new barns, which was a common custom of the time. Some felt the need for it in their stomach and the infirmities, which was sometimes epidemic in the new country. As one such barn raising and portage during during the 1840s, a concoction known as Black Strap, which was a blend of water, molasses, and Luke's Best Whiskey, which I will describe a little bit later on, in nearly equal proportions, and this was according to the Kalamazoo Telegraph, was served up on site for the workers in a large washtub. Another prominent local pioneer, William Billy Wood, once recalled that whiskey was sold at all public gatherings 
over a board fixed between two trees and covered with a cloth. Very much the same as a red lemonade stand now dispensed at country fairs. So according to Wood, the usual price was three cents for a tumbler full. But he said you scarcely ever did see a man become intoxicated. Wood also revealed that the whiskey was made in a little still which had been set up in the community. But he wouldn't say exactly where it was. So clearly, when you look back at it, distilling grain into alcohol was, and of course still is, big business. From that perspective alone, it's interesting to explore the backgrounds of some of the early enterprises and to learn more about the people behind this lucrative and often controversial industry coming out of Kalamazoo. So I'm going to read you some short bios of a couple of the distillers and manufacturers of alcohol from Kalamazoo, but then I'm going to focus in on the one that made really Kalamazoo famous in its time. So to begin, we're going to talk about Hosea B. Huston. When Titus Bronson platted the village of Bronson, which later became Kalamazoo in 1831, Hosea Huston was right there, right along with Nathan Harrison, Cyrus Lovell, Justice Burdick, and others. Huston had been elected as the township clerk and served as the first village sheriff. He opened the first store in the village on the northeast corner of Main and Rose Streets and later became proprietor of the 97 Main dry goods store commonly known as Old Brig. In 1843, Huston became the first village president, and it's also likely he was responsible for the community's first distillery. Soon after his arrival in Bronson, Huston set up a distillery a mile or so northeast of the village near the Kalamazoo River where Spring Valley Park is today and began making whiskey, which at that time sold for 25 cents to 30 cents per gallon. Huston originally called his place Clipnocky, but later changed the name to Enniskillen. Enniskillen whiskey became a favorite among locals. In the late 1830s, Francis Frank March bought out the property, including the distillery, and soon after took over the Old Brig 97 Main dry goods business. March immediately began offering any quantity of Enskillen whiskey, be it in the gallon, the barrel, or the hogshead, which was about 63 gallons, or any other quantity desired. And he offered this for exchange for wheat, corn, oats, rye, barley, hops, merchandise, or cash. In May of 1841, March advertised his full stock of dry goods in exchange for cash or corn, hoping to secure 2,000 bushels of shelled corn and 500 bushels of wheat for his distillery. Quite a businessman. Frank March did a brisk business until March of 1848 when he put his property up for sale, including the Ellis Killen Distillery, and the distillery never reopened. Now, another distiller was Thomas Clark. During the spring of 1836, Thomas Clark, born in Essex, England in 1782, arrived in Kalamazoo with his family and built a distillery on the west side of the Kalamazoo River, just north of where Michigan Avenue Bridge is now. His son, George Thomas Clark, who was born in 1808, helped run the operation. In February 1837, the T. Clark and Son Distillery was paying cash for grain and advertising plenty of well-rectified whiskey on hand. 
Rectified refers to the process of creating blends from multiple batches for consistent flavor. The Clarks advertised frequently for more than a year and apparently ran a successful business, but the enterprise was very short-lived. Thomas Clark died unexpectedly in Kalamazoo on January 14, 1838, and it appears that the family distillery operation ceased soon after that. And then in 1845, two prominent dry goods merchants, Isaac Moffat and Hiram Arnold, formed a new partnership with Prentice S. Cobb and the former sheriff of Kalamazoo, John Parker. And together they developed a large steam-powered grist mill on Kalamazoo's north side, a few blocks north of the Michigan Central Depot. In 1849, they made plans to add a sawmill and a distillery on the property. Moffat and company engaged John Earl to build this distillery. Earl learned the trade while working with his uncle in New York and had just completed a large distillery for Isaac Willard over in Pawpaw. So after much planning, work finally got underway, and by the spring of 1850, Moffat and company was operating a sawmill and a distillery in a large double building on the west side of Burdick Street between North and Frank Streets. The company advertised extensively soliciting large quantities of wheat, corn, rye, barley, and oats for their mill and distillery, while, according to the Gazette, was solely employed for the manufacture of high wines liquor for exportation. Moffat's distillery turned out some 60,000 gallons of liquor annually and was in operation until the mid-1850s when a short-lived statewide liquor ban went into effect. Hiram Arnold resigned in 1855 and went into the banking business. Isaac Moffat served as the village president from 1849 until 1851, and he was one of the principal investors in the Kalamazoo and Grand Rapids Plank Road. And the distillery building on Burdick Street was acquired by George Judge in 1857 and converted to a malt house and brewery. So perhaps the best known and certainly the most successful of all the Kalamazoo distilleries was owned and operated by the three Whitcomb brothers. Elias, who was born in 1804, Leverett, who was born in 1806, and Luke, who was born in 1810. The Whitcombs descended from a long line of New England millers, including their great-grandfather, Joseph Whitcomb, who was a miller in New Hampshire. All three sons were born in Vermont, where their father, Peter Whitcomb, was himself a miller. The family later relocated to western New York, where the boys learned the trade from their father, before ultimately moving on to Kalamazoo. In 1835, the first bridge was constructed across the Kalamazoo River, where the Michigan Avenue now crosses. During the fall, Anthony Cooley and Erastus Bailey began building the town's first gristmill near the bridge along the east side of the river. By springtime, Cooley and Bailey had their mill up and running and were busy grinding wheat into flour. So joyous were the citizens of Kalamazoo about the new construction of this new mill that a special committee was enlisted to draft a formal letter of appreciation in Bailey's honor. And Bailey said in response, it's highly gratifying to me to have my name associated with the growing interest of so enlightened and intelligent a community as the citizens of Kalamazoo. 
So Elias Whitcomb arrived in Kalamazoo in 1836 and purchased Bailey's share of the newly built flour mill. Whitcomb's younger brother, Leverett, joined him in Kalamazoo a year later. Eventually, the Whitcomb brothers assumed full ownership of the grist mill and became well-liked among the locals. Leverett Whitcomb was another who would later play a significant role in the development of the Kalamazoo and Grand Rapids Plank Roads. So during the spring of 1838, the third brother, Luke Wheelock Whitcomb, made the journey westward from the family home in western New York and settled in Kalamazoo. And he purchased the old Clark Distillery across the river from his brother's grist mill. Now Luke soon had his distillery operation in full swing, making whiskey and packing salt-cured pork and making lots of bacon. Now Whitcomb operated the distillery in its original location until July of 1841 when a sudden fire consumed the building, taking with it a few barrels of pork and a thousand gallons of whiskey. And that's according to the Kalamazoo Gazette. So after the fire, the Whitcombs hired a local carpenter named Martin Turner to put up a new distillery, building next to the flour mill on the east side of the river, and to build a new sawmill on the same property just north of it. Turner had originally been contracted by George Gale to build a sawmill in what would later become Galesburg, but when the building project fell through, Turner sold the wood to Luke Whitcomb instead and floated it down the river to Kalamazoo. For the next uh, dozen years or so, Luke Whitcomb packed barrels of salt-cured pork and distilled upwards of 60,000 gallons of liquor annually. A statewide prohibition law went into effect in December of 1853, which undoubtedly curtailed Luke's distilling operation for a time. Although local government was evidently lax and the law was soon declared unconstitutional. Leverett Whitcomb continued to run the sawmill and Elias Whitcomb took care of the day-to-day operations in the flour mill until his untimely death in April of 1854. Leverett and Luke then carried on as L and L.W. Whitcomb, although the worst of times for the Whitcomb brothers, it seems, still lay ahead. In 1858, something disastrous would happen. It would be a devastating year for the Whitcomb brothers. Heavy spring rains swamped the area, causing the Kalamazoo and the Portage Rivers to overflow and flood hundreds of acres of meadow, as reported by the Kalamazoo Telegraph, along the banks of these rivers. And the otherwise gentle Arcadia Creek became a raging torrent that washed out a culvert west of town that sent floodwaters pouring over the north side of the community. So by June 1st, the Main Street Bridge over the Kalamazoo River was partially submerged, and the mill race near Whitcomb's Mill was completely underwater. The mill and the distillery buildings withstood the watery onslaught, although some 400 hogs narrowly escaped the rising water and had to be moved to higher ground. Grain in the mill was stored in upper-level room, so it was safe from the water, but damage to the machinery on the ground level was said to be severe, and the water soon subsided, but the brothers' troubles were only just beginning. During the early morning hours of September 23rd, that same year in 1858, a sudden blaze wiped out the entire Whitcomb Mill and Distillery Complex, including all of its contents. 
A worker in charge of the mill had evidently allowed a lamp to come in contact with a cask of liquor, which ignited a blaze that quickly consumed the dry wooden buildings, including the distillery, the grist mill, an adjoining shed, the sawmill, and some livestock. And some 300 hogs were saved from the blaze, but loss was estimated in excess of $17,000, which today would be more than $465,000 in comparison, adjusting for inflation. And the trouble is the Whitcombs had no insurance to cover this. So Leverett Whitcomb was overwhelmed by this loss, and without the ability to rebuild his operation, he died less than two years later. This, along with the nation's growing anti-liquor sentiment at the time, effectively brought an end to commercial distilling in Kalamazoo. Now, the surviving brother, Luke Whitcomb, was quite a character. He was often referred to as Ever the Gentleman. One account later told of several temperance supporters who watched the 1858 fire and suggested to the firemen, just let it burn, as it was nothing but an old distillery. Now, Whitcomb knew that some horses and several head of cattle were kept in the sheds directly behind the burning building, and in response told the firemen to never mind the whiskey, let it burn, but save the animals. Now, an interesting part of this whole anecdote is that a decade later, Luke Whitcomb was standing nearby when fire broke out in the old congregational church building on Academy Street, and bystanders, who many of them were former temperance members were pleading for assistance to help remove furniture ahead of the blaze. And Luke went ahead and corped out, well, let her burn. It's nothing but a church. But then he removed his coat and jumped in to help remove the contents of the building along with everybody else. So Luke Whitcomb had his faults and vices, like many other men, recalled Judge E.W. DeYoy in 1901, but despite all of them, he was ever the gentleman under all circumstances. And this is according to the Kalamazoo Gazette. So now we're going to talk about Kalamazoo's most famous whiskey. Despite the 1858 fire and the untimely deaths of his business partners, his brothers, Luke Whitcomb forged ahead. He knew that despite stiff competition from the big city distilleries and growing resistance from the temperance movement, that there was still money to be made locally in the liquor trade. So he formed L.W. Whitcomb & Company and went into the business of rectifying whiskey at the corner of Harrison and Willard Streets. So rather than distilling it locally, raw corn liquor was brought in by rail from out of town, typically Detroit, and then aged and mixed into various blends and distributed regionally. Now, Luke Whitcomb's signature product had for many years been a whiskey known as Luke's Best, which grew famous largely by word of mouth from Chicago to the eastern seaboard, and perhaps even abroad. From the 1840s, freshly distilled Luke's Best, said to be made from old-fashioned eight-road Yankee flint corn, pronounced by competent judges to be the best whiskey ever made on earth. And this was according to the Kalamazoo Gazette. And it could be purchased right from the distillery for 25 cents a gallon or 50 cents for a gallon of two-year-old Luke's Best. And it would continue to be Whitcomb's stock and trade for decades to come, in fact, outliving old Luke himself by some 15 years. 
Now, there's some interesting tall tales of Luke Whitcomb that have remained around in Kalamazoo lore. So Whitcomb was tall in statue and a bold character who seldom hesitated to make his presence known. As the story goes, Luke took such pride in his work that he felt every tavern in the country should carry Luke's best, and he often took it upon himself to see that they did. According to the Gazette in 1922, pioneers who had a taste for strong drink declared that the best was better than any other brand he had. Whitcomb himself pinned his reputation to it, and he said to have been quite partial to the liquor of his own making. As Luke traveled, he stopped and asked for it wherever he went. So there's a typical story of Luke Whitcomb traveling, and it's recalled in a 1920 edition of the Kalamazoo Gazette. It's said that Luke once went on a journey to the elite east, and the trip being made by stagecoach, he stopped every 10 or dozen miles or so, so that the horses might be changed and the passengers might alight and either exercise their legs or find refreshment in the taverns. So at each of the stopping places, the story goes, Whitcomb would invite his companions to have a little something and in each case ordered Luke's best. In each instance, a bottle of the best was set out and duly sampled until late in the day in sampling a drink, Whitcomb smashed his glass on the bar of the tavern where the stage had stopped and exclaimed, I called for Luke's best. That's Luke's best, reported the landlord who waited upon the party. Tis not, thundered Whitcomb. I know Luke's best when I see it or smell it or taste it for I am Luke Whitcomb himself. Now, sir, set out a bottle of the best and never tried to palm off an inferior article. Apologizing, the tavern keeper placed a bottle of the genuine article on the bar, and it is said that as long as he sold refreshments for men and beasts, he never again attempted to substitute anything else for Luke's best. So that was the little anecdote about Luke Whitcomb in his traveling excursions promoting his liquor. So there's another story that was published in 1901, and it says at one time, Mr. Whitcomb went to Albany, stopping at a tavern near where he went in and inquired if he could get a drink of first-class whiskey there. He, by the way, was not a fancy dresser, and the clothes he wore were not always as neatly kept as they might have been. The bartender looked him over and was about to say something when Mr. Whitcomb espied a sign, old Luke's best whiskey for sale here. And then turning to the man behind the bar, he said, Give me some of that old Luke's best. The bartender replied, Do you know that whiskey will cost you 15 cents a drink? Raising himself into his full height and bringing his fist down on the bar, he replied, 15 cents? 15 cents is too cheap, too cheap. Ought to be 20. Give me some of it anyways, for I am old Luke myself. So he showed that bartender. Now, it's also said that Luke himself was a bit of a prankster. And in the November 1899 edition of the Kalamazoo Gazette, there was a series of stories about Kalamazoo and its early pioneers and some of the humorous things that happened to them. And one of the stories was told by Luke Whitcomb as an incident that occurred during an early 4th of July celebration near what is now Farmer's Alley. And it goes, in the late 30s or early 40s, there was a 4th of July celebration held on the premise of General Humphrey that 
took in the whole square there where the farmer's sheds now stand, and the residence stood on a rise of ground back in the center of the plat, the front gate opening out onto Main Street, which is now covered with stores. And the village then had 700 to 1,000 inhabitants. Patriotic citizens furnished two barrels of lemonade with ice, the first known in this section. Early in the day, Luke Whitcomb, who ran a distillery and sawmill on the east bank of the river, East Main Street, tasted the stuff and at once proclaimed that it would give everyone who drank it the chill fever. He at once drove to his distillery and brought back with him two gallons of whiskey made from the old-fashioned eight-road Yankee corn, pronounced by competent judges to be the best whiskey ever on earth, and poured a gallon into each barrel. We have tried time and time again to have some of the old pioneers tell us of that celebration, but all we could get from either men or women was a shake of the head and a big laugh, with the request to ask so-and-so about. And then when so-and-so was approached, they ultimately refused to talk. But so we ascertained that the whole town acted as if they were chock full of enthusiasm. It was generally believed that the ice, to which the people were not used to, had an exhilarating effect. But that, as it may, no increase of fever or chill was ever reported. Now, even during the Civil War, there were stories about Luke's best being connected with it and there was a report from a man named gw lyon who submitted this report to the soldiers aid society in july of 1862 and he described the conditions he found in various field hospitals while touring the civil war battlefields and he spoke extensively of the michigan regiments the 12th michigan regiment was in truly deplorable condition according to lyon and they had suffered terribly on the battlefield and they had greatly reduced numbers. Sickness was alarmingly prevalent, and the men were disheartened and disaffected. The lack of proper food and stimulus greatly swelled the list of deaths, and we were abundantly supplied with everything else except mosquito nets that a hospital needs. We needed more fresh meat, more vegetables, milk, and pickles, and had it not been for 20 gallons of Luke's Best contributed to our supplies... I have no doubt more lives would have been lost. The liquors furnished by the government are unfit for a sick man. And that was G.W. Lyon's take on that experience during the Civil War. Now, Luke Whitcomb did rather well for himself in the distilling and rectifying trade. And during the 1860s, Luke carried a Class B liquor license, which allowed him to produce up to 500 barrels of liquor each year. And then in 1860, the census taker valued Whitcomb's inventory of whiskey, 25,000 gallons at 58 cents per gallon, for a total value of $14,500, which was about 409000 in today's currency. Whitcomb's reported annual income for the year of 1865 was $12,251, or roughly $178,000 today. So after Luke Whitcomb's death in April of 1868, his partners Milford Joy and Legrand Whitcomb continued the business of the old Harrison Street location until about 1872. And in June of that year, Legrand Whitcomb returned to milling and Milford Joy moved his rectifying and wholesale liquor operation to a building on the south side of Water Street between Edwards and Pitcher. And then in 1876, 
Luke's widow built a stately home on the corner of Lovell and Park Street, which stood for many years where the Kalamazoo Institute of the Arts is now located. And by 1881, Hiram Cobb had rented the old distillery building on Harrison Street for his new Spring Tooth Harrow Manufacturing Company. Milford Joy continued manufacturing and distributing Luke's Best from his Water Street facility until his retirement in about 1884. Now, LeGrand Whitcomb was actually the son of Luke Whitcomb's brother, Leverett Whitcomb. And after his father, Leverett Whitcomb, had died in 1860, his son, LeGrand Whitcomb, who was born in 1836, built a new gristmill on the site and opened it in September of 1862. But it was without a distillery. And shortly after, LeGrand sold his mill to another man and joined his uncle, Luke, and longtime Kalamazoo merchant, Milford M. Joy, in the whiskey rectifying business and distribution business. So that's how... LeGrand Whitcomb became a partner of Luke Whitcomb. And there's a very interesting final story about this that tells the story of the last drop of Luke's best that was ever drank. When Luke Whitcomb's son Noble was born, the proud father presented the doctor, whose name was T.A. Metcalf, with a bottle of eight-year-old Luke's best. And the good doctor put the bottle away and kept it safely hidden for a number of years. And then in March of 1901, a group of area businessmen gathered at the Post Tavern in Battle Creek to celebrate Dr. Metcalf's 70th birthday. And on this occasion, the bottle of whiskey was brought forth, covered with dust, cobwebs, and dirt, and ceremoniously opened. And a number of guests sipped the liquor and found it to be the same fine quality of the former years when it was the leader in its class. The gentlemen were regaled with Luke's Best and other refreshments over 50 years of age. And it was hailed by the Battle Creek Journal as the last drop of Luke's Best in the world that was consumed that day. And so that's some of the legacy and the history of Luke's Best, whiskey, and the story of the Whitcomb brothers and the distilling industry in Kalamazoo, Michigan. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to rate subscribe and review on whatever app that you are listening on out there. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can always find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And I always enjoy learning about these old companies that once existed in Southwest Michigan. And I hope that you find it as fascinating as I do, because I think the industry of some of the early pioneers and how they made successful lives of themselves as merchants and businessmen and manufacturers of all kinds of goods is just inspiring to look at and it's always inspiring to encourage present-day generations to take on the same ambitions. And it sure would be interesting to see some new distillery come along and capture the name Luke's Best and market that and tie it in with the old history of Kalamazoo. So any distilleries out there, you might want to take note of that and remember that it was Luke's Best that made Kalamazoo, Michigan famous during its time for incredible distilled whiskey. So until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening. 